We're calling it the hope of heaven. And what we're looking at is our eternal destination. We're looking at our eternal home. We're looking at this place where through faith in Jesus, you and I are going to spend forever and ever and ever and ever. And I've been looking forward to this for like three months. I have. I mean, I am incredibly excited about this particular series, more so than I've been about a series in a while, but I'm also a little bit concerned, and I'll tell you why. Because as I've talked to people and it's become kind of known that, hey, Tom's going to be talking about heaven in the series, I've had person after person come to me and say, okay, well, you're talking about heaven. That's great because I've always wanted to know about thus and so. And in my mind, I'm thinking, but I'm not planning to address that. Oh, wow, you're doing a series on the book of Revelation. I'm like, no, 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 just chapter 21 and the first five verses of 22. Well, clearly then, Tom, you're going to talk about the rapture and the, you know, seven-year tribulation and the thousand-year millennial kingdom and the battle of Gog and Magog and the valley of Armageddon. I mean, you're going to deal with that, aren't you? No. At least I didn't plan to. What I've recognized is that when it comes to the topic of heaven and, for that matter, to the topic of the book of Revelation, people have all kinds of questions. And in this series, at least in part, we're dealing with both. And you know what? The questions are important. The questions are significant. And here's my fear. My fear is that if I don't deal with at least some of the big ones, the questions will be distracting. We have in this series the privilege of gazing upon the vision of the new heavens and of the new earth, and that is a holy task, and that is a profound endeavor, and that tolerates zero distractions. So, what I've done in this message is I just thought, well, you know, I'll just take the first message of this series, and I'll just raise, ask and answer some of the more popular questions that I've been hearing over the course of the last month or two, some of which you might think are a little silly, but somebody else thinks are pretty amazing. And the whole idea behind this is I want to get them out of the way so we can just focus on this vision. All right, so question number one. This is pressing in the hearts of some of us. You ready? Some of you will think this is silly. Others are going to be like, yes. What about our pets? Are they in the new heaven and the new earth? Because you want to know, don't you? Some of you are almost insulted by that. It's like, wait a minute, you just said this is a holy and profound. Now we're talking about pets. Yeah, but if you're a pet lover, you're all over this. I am a pet lover. I love my pet. I don't tell him that for fear that he will take advantage of me. (laughs) What? My dog, I've shared this with you, teaches calculus to college students. He, He actually, he used to work for NASA. He retired. He's a multimillionaire. He lives on a pension. We love our pets. There are people here today who love their pets. You know what the reality is? We love our pets more than we do most people. Let's just be honest. We do. We spend more time with them. We'd rather talk to them. We spend more of our time and energy attending to their needs. We spend more money on them. One of the most condemning studies on evangelical Christians came out, I don't know, maybe a decade ago at this point. And it was this. It was that evangelical Christians, those of us, that's us, those of us who are charged with the mission of taking the eternally life-changing message of Jesus Christ to people all over this globe who are going to spend eternity somewhere, spend more money feeding their pets than they do on missions. Is that true of you? But that doesn't answer the question, all right? What about our pets? Here's my answer. I have no idea. I honestly don't. And let me tell you why I don't know. I don't know because the Bible doesn't say, and I can't go where the Bible doesn't go. Now, do I think that there will be animals in the new heaven and the new earth that I can't wait, by the way, to focus on 
for the next five or six weeks. Do I think there will be animals there just as there are animals here? Yes, I do. And I think that's a reasonable assumption. But will they be the same animals somehow made new? Or will they just be brand new animals? I have no idea. I really don't know. Would it be just like God to take your favorite little Fido or whatever, you know, and give that dog or that cat or all your dogs and cats to you forever and ever, knowing that it would just thrill your heart? Yeah, I think it would, but I don't know that he'll do that. So what about the pets? I don't know. Um, So hopefully that'll be helpful to you. All right, question number two. What am I going to look like when I get to heaven? Because you do know that the Scriptures teach that you're going to get a new body. Christ the King is going to return, guys, and the heavenly heralds will shout out the announcement of the return of the King, and they will blast their trumpets, and the dead in Christ will rise. And those who are living and in faith in Him will receive new bodies as well. We will be changed in an instant. We will have new bodies, but the question is, what will those new bodies look like? Because inquiring minds want to know. There is a dear, sweet lady who's a good friend of mine in this congregation, and she's rather diminutive. And she came to me one day, and she said, you know, and she said, I just know that the Lord will not let me be four foot ten for all of eternity. And, uh, and she told me last night she wants to be five ten. I think that's overstretching, you know, that's a little overreaching there. But she'd settled for five six. Is she going to get that? I don't know. And the Bible doesn't say. You're going to get a new body, and I think that there will be similarities between that body and the body that you have now, but there will be dissimilarities too. I mean, you think about Jesus. He's the first to receive one of these resurrection bodies. He was recognizable, for the most part, by His disciples. There were parts of Him, if you will. He was. They understood, this is Jesus. There's not a lot of ambiguity on that. So there are similarities, but I think there will be dissimilarities as well. The, the analogy of Scripture is that of a seed that's planted in the ground. You plant the seed in the ground, and it comes forth from the ground, but it comes forth very differently, doesn't it? And yet... The tomato seed produces the tomato plant. The orange seed produces the orange tree. There's a continuity and a discontinuity. And I will tell you this, in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no infirmities. There will be no disabilities. There will be no disfigurements. There will be none of the things that plague us and our bodies in this world. And that's cause for rejoicing. Nothing funny about that. Question number three, and this is another one that kind of tolerates no joking. We're going to be looking five or six weeks at the vision of the new heavens. Hear that word? New? At the vision of the new heavens and the new earth that we find in Revelation 21, first five verses of 22. Just reminding you, we're not dealing with the whole book, okay? But we're looking at the new heavens and the new earth, this great vision that John gives us. But wait a minute, that's the new heavens. That's the new earth. That's someday in the future. It's not now. So if I die now, Tom, where do I go? Or where did my friend go? Because what you're talking about is someday down the road, it's Jesus returns. He ushers it in. It's... And that hasn't happened. Well, the Bible is not ambiguous about that. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 1, beginning of verse 20. He's pondering the end of his life. He's realizing it's coming to an end, guys. He doesn't know for sure if he's about to die, but he's, he's dealing with the reality that, yes, that might, in fact, happen. And he says this, he says, "...as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death." He's saying, you know, if I live or die, my prayer is that I will have the faith, the courage to 
to exalt Christ, even in my death. And then he says something that is incredibly profound. He says, for to me, to live is Christ. Now, time out for a second, little tangent. Are you ready for this? If you had to make that statement, how would you make it? For to me, to live is, and then fill in the blank. For to me, to live is success in my business. For to me, to live is my children. For to me, to live is my reputation. For to me, to live is what? You know, one of the lessons that I hope you walk away with today is that this earth is passing away. This is a place that is destined to disappear. So what then is wisdom? It is to make your life Christ. It's to invest it in something that will never disappear. And someone who has purchased you utterly with his own life, Paul gets it. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is a tragic loss. That's not what he says, but that's what we say. He's speaking of this place where he's going to go when he dies. Is it the new heaven and the new earth? No, 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 that's in the future. And yet it's gain, isn't it? For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, if I am to live in the flesh, well, then that means fruitful labor for me. There are good things that I can yet do with this life that I'm still enjoying. Yet, which I choose, I cannot tell. He says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. He's struggling. Do I want to live or do I want to die and go beware? With Jesus, he says, my desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is not just better, it's far better. If I die today, if you die today, do you go to the new heavens and the new earth? No, no, no. You're not going there. Not yet. That's Revelation 21 through 22, verse 5. We're getting there. That's when Jesus returns. Your body is laid in the grave, and your spirit goes to be with Christ in the present heaven, which parenthetically is not a bad place to be. In fact, it's not just better. It's far better, and there you wait for the Father to say to the Son, okay, now it's time. Send forth the heavenly heralds. Let the trumpets blast, and let then the dead in Christ rise and then you get your new body. You following along so far? You're going to need your thinking caps for this one. All right, question number four. And this is the question that dominates the rest of this message and could like easily dominate the entire series if I don't deal with it and then set it aside. Here it is. When are we going to experience the new heaven and the new earth? And more particularly, this is really the question, what is the chronology of events that needs to occur between then and now? You see, how are things going to play out, biblically speaking, Tom, from this moment in time that I'm living in until that moment in time when the new heavens and the new earth become mine, become yours through faith in Christ? In answer to that, I want to look at 2 Peter 3. And I know that some of you go, well, wait a minute. That's weird. Why do you want to look at 2 Peter 3? I mean, isn't the entire book of Revelation about that? I mean, it's about that chronology of event. I've seen the charts. I know the deal. And there's this, and then this happens, and then this, and then it fits very nicely in a little model. And isn't that what it's all about, Tom? Well, maybe. But maybe it isn't. You know, one of the problems that we have in interpreting the book of Revelation is we don't know when it was written. I mean, we know that it was written in the first century. We know that it was written by John the Apostle. 
But everybody's kind of divided on, was it written in the AD 60s or was it written in the AD 90s? And I know from our perspective, 2010, we're like, who cares? 60s, 90s, you know. What difference does it make? Oh, it makes all the difference in the world. And the reason it makes all the difference in the world is that in between the 60s and the 90s, and to be specific, in AD 70, the city of Jerusalem, this city who rejected the Son of God and who crucified the Messiah of Israel, and whom Jesus himself spoke vehemently against, was exactly as Christ prophesied. It is one of the most terrifyingly precise prophecies in all of the Bible, utterly destroyed by the Romans. And if Revelation was written before that event in the 60s, then a powerful case can be made that most of the apocalyptic of that language of that book is referring to that event, not all of it, not this vision that we're going to look at. That's new heaven and new earth, but consider that. Now, if it was written in the 90s, clearly it doesn't have that in mind. And that leaves us open to a lot of the imaginations and different schemes and you know strategies and whatnot that have been worked out over the years that many of you are familiar with. I want to look at 2 Peter 3, and I'm going to give you a second reason, because it's clear. And that's a pretty good reason. One of the most commonly accepted principles for interpreting the Bible is that you interpret that which is less clear in favor of that which is more clear. You do that in your marriage, don't you? I mean, wives, you are constantly communicating to your things to your husband, which seem perfectly clear to you, by the way, but we just don't get it. We don't pick up on the vibe. We don't pick up on the innuendo. We don't pick up on the language. We don't understand what you're saying. We are not getting it at all. Now, I will grant you, we ought to get it. I'm okay with that, just as long as you're okay with the fact that whether we ought to or not, we don't. Until finally in frustration and often in anger, you speak, well, by our standards, clearly. And we then interpret that which to us at least was unclear in light of that which is clear. We do it all the time. And we do it in the Bible. And I don't think that anyone in their right mind would argue that the book of Revelation, with all of its signs and all of its symbols and all of its images and all of its you know, figurative language, is more clear than the plain speak of Peter in 2 Peter 3, who, by the way, takes up the topic of the return of Jesus and the new heavens and the new earth, and he gives us a chronology. So, let's look at it. In 2 Peter 3, beginning at verse 1, it says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. And we have both of those letters. It's 1 Peter, it's 2 Peter. He's saying, hey, guys, this is the second letter that I'm writing to you now. And then he calls them beloved. Now, hang on a second, because it's important that you understand exactly who it is that he's writing to. Who are the beloved? Well, in chapter 1, verse 1, he makes it very clear. He's addressing his letter, and he does it specifically. He says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to who? Because it's really important. You ready? To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, Peter is writing to believers. Can you remember that? That becomes important later in this conversation. But it's important now, too, because he's not just writing to believers then in the first century. He's writing to you, and he's writing very purposefully. 
He says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved, in whom, in both of them, he says, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. He's saying, guys, I'm writing to remind you of something. He says that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets. Now, wait a minute. Who are they? Well, let's go back into the Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. You know, Amos, Obadiah, Joel, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zechariah, you know, all of the Old Testament prophets. It's like, guys, I'm writing to you to remind you of what the Old Testament prophets with a unanimous voice have predicted. And not just them. He says, and the commandment of the Lord, that's Jesus, and Savior, through who? Through the apostles. So now what is he referring to? What is the New Testament? It's the commandment of our Lord and Savior through Jesus or through his apostles. So he's collecting up the Old Testament. He's collecting up the New Testament. He's saying, guys, I'm writing to remind you of something. You beloved, you believers, and here's the deal. It's the unanimous voice of the Old and New Testament. That's a profound thought. But what is it? He says, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days. Those are people who mock, and they'll come with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And what will be the substance of their scoffing? What is it specifically that they will mock about our faith as believers? Because it then defines what Peter's topic is going forward. He says, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming. Where is this Jesus? I mean, good grief, man. It's been 2,000 years. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever heard that? Peter is going to talk about the return of Christ. That is his topic. That is the promise the scoffers doubt, and that is the promise that he's now going to unpack chronologically. He says this, he says, these scoffers will come and they will say, where is the promise of his coming? And then he says, they'll take you all the way back to the beginning of creation. And what will they say? They'll say, well, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, hang on a second. If you know your Bible, is that true? It's not true. And so now here, Peter begins to explain what they're missing, actually what they're intentionally overlooking. And he's saying, look, here's the deal. Old Testament and New Testament agree on this. Let me give you the chronology of events that lead up to the return of this Jesus that they're mocking. And let me point out to you the error in their thinking when they make this claim that since creation, yeah, pretty much everything is the same. Like nothing significant has happened. It's not the case. He says, for these scoffers deliberately, so he charges them with intentionality. He's saying, these, these scoffers intentionally overlook this fact. Okay, so what's the fact? That the heavens existed long ago, and that the earth was formed out of water and through water by means of the Word of God. He's saying, look, okay, they want to go all the way back to the beginning. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. Let's go to Genesis 1.1. Let's start at the beginning of the original creation, and then let's play it forward. And let's see if anything significant has occurred that they're overlooking intentionally. So he takes us all the way back to the beginning, and he says they intentionally overlooked the fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water. You remember that story. And through water, by means of the Word of God, God speaks ten words, and He creates all that is. And, he says, meaning they also overlook, and here it comes, 
that by means of these, meaning by means of water, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. I think it's so ironic that there was this big news story this week about, you know, the finding of Noah's Ark. Did you see that? I don't know if they actually did find Noah's Ark or not, but, but that's what he's referring to. Peter's recalling that story of the literal destruction of the earth by water, which, by the way, is a cleansing agent, isn't it? And he's saying, look, these people who mock the return of Christ and who say nothing's really happened since the beginning of creation and so forth are intentionally overlooking the reality that God who spoke this world, the original world, into existence then destroyed it with the cleansing agent of water. Now, why do they overlook it? Well, why did he destroy it? He destroyed it in judgment for ungodliness and unrighteousness. He cleansed it with water. And the reality is that if you and I have not found safety from the judgment and from the wrath of God through faith in Jesus, which is freely offered by this one who took that judgment and that wrath upon himself on the cross, you know, we really don't want to think about that stuff. It's just... It's not comfortable. He says they overlook that in their sinful desires. They ignore intentionally the judgment and wrath of God. They scoff at the coming of Christ, and that is significant. Why, Peter? Well, verse 7, but by the same word, he says, meaning the same word of that same God who created that original creation and then washed it away with the flood cleansing it of its unrighteousness. He says, by, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist. Uh-oh, that's our earth. That's the one that we live in. That's the one that these scoffers live in. Well, wait a minute. What is he going to say about our earth? He says, but by the same word that created the original earth and then destroyed it, cleansing it with water, he says, the, the heavens and earth that now exist are likewise is the idea being stored up for fire as opposed to water, but it is a cleansing agent, isn't it? You purify with fire. Our earth is likewise being stored up for fire, he says, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. He's saying, look, just as God judged the original creation and then cleansed it with water, he says, so it will be in our world, except by fire. So he's laying out a chronology of events, you see, that lead, as you'll see, to the return of Christ and the ushering in of the new heavens and of the new earth. And he's calling out the pattern of the original creation and destruction. And he's saying, did you see how it happened there? Because how it happened there is how it happens here. And forgive me, but there wasn't a seven-year tribulation and a thousand-year millennial reign and a battle of God wasn't there. And he's not speaking in signs and symbols and images and figurative language. He's speaking plainly. This is not difficult, I think, to follow or to understand. In verse 8, he then comes to us and says, now I'm going to tell you guys, beloveds, you believers, what you ought not to overlook. He says, but you is the idea. Do not overlook this one fact. You people who are subject to the scoffing and even to the doubts yourself, I mean, it has been 2,000 years. 
He's reminding us that we might be encouraged. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. Now, where does that come from? Isaiah, he's pulling out of the Old Testament. With the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So what? It's been 2,000 years. It's like since Friday from his perspective. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise. What promise? The promise that is the subject of this whole chapter, the promise that is the, the substance of the criticism of the mockers, the promise of His return. He's saying the Lord is not slow with regard to fulfilling His promise to return, but is patient toward who? He's patient toward, what's the next word? You can say it, it's okay. You. Now, wait a minute, who's the You. It's the beloved, is it not? It's the people who share a faith equal to his faith. He's speaking to Christians. He's saying the Lord, in delaying his promise, is being patient toward everyone in the world? No. Toward you. He identifies a specific people. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any of you, is the idea, should perish, but that all of you should reach repentance. What in the world does that mean? It's very Presbyterian, I would point out. It really is. You see, the Scriptures teach that from before the foundation of the world was laid, the Lord God for His own glory and within the counsel of His own wisdom alone, which is impenetrable, ordained and chose a group of humanity to be His own special people from every tribe, from every language, from every tongue, from every race, from every color, from every age of man. And He will not return and bring the day of judgment and renewal until by faith every one of them has been gathered into the fold. When the last is gathered, the Lord returns. Peter says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise to return, but is patient toward you believers, not wishing that any of you should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord, he says, meaning the day of the return of Jesus, will, and here comes the very common explanation of it or analogy. He says, it will come like a thief. How does a thief come? Unexpectedly. He will come like a thief. And then what will happen? Because he uses chronological language. And then he says what? He says, and then? He says there will be a rapture, and then there will be a seven-year period of tribulation with an antichrist and all of that. And then that will be followed by the return of Jesus again, which will then be the time that he sets up his millennial kingdom in the literal city of Jerusalem, and he will reign on the earth for a thousand years, followed then by the battle of Gog and Magog, right, in the Jezreel Valley, in which is contained the ancient city of Megiddo. You can see it if you go there today. It's part of the tour. And so, therefore, it's referred to as the Armageddon or Armageddon. You see the war of. And then there will be, you know, the great white throne judgment. And then there will be the dissolving of the heavens and the earth by fire. And then will come the new heavens and the new earth. Guys, that's not what he says. But I want to say that is what so many, and many of you might fit this description, that that is what so many wonderful, God-fearing, 
incredible Christian men and women who are intelligent and well-studied, but who date the book of Revelation in the 90s and who favor that figurative language over that which is plain, because Peter, Peter's pretty clear, would say. What does Peter say? He says, but the day of the Lord, the day of the return of Christ will come like a thief. And then what happens? Because that's chronological language. He says, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. He says, look, did you catch what happened the first earth, the first go around? Suddenly, unexpectedly, cataclysmic cleansing and judgment. He's saying, just like it was in the days of Noah, so it will be when the Lord returns. Just like it was in the first earth, so it will be in this earth that is. And according to Matthew, at least, Jesus agrees. Matthew 24, listen to what he says, verse 37. Jesus says, for as were the days of Noah. My goodness, does that sound familiar at this point? For as were the days of Noah, so will be the what? The coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, you see, completely oblivious to the coming judgment is the idea, and scoffing at this crazy man Noah who built this huge boat in the middle of the Mesopotamian plains. I mean, it was ridiculous. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the seven-year tribulation. No, until the day. Until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And Peter is simply saying exactly the same thing. He's laying out this chronology and he says, but the day, do you hear that? Of the Lord, meaning the day of the return of Jesus will come like a thief and then what happens? Then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And then he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, all these things that we are chasing after, investing our lives in, with the few moments we have to invest. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? He's saying it ought to affect the way you live. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness as opposed to unholiness? In lives of godliness as opposed to ungodliness. That's what's destined for destruction. Waiting for and hastening the coming day. It's a day of God because of which, and now he says it again, because of which there will be a rapture in a seven-year... No. Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, what promise? The same one we've been talking about all the way from the beginning when we started with the scoffers. Where is this Jesus who's coming? According to his promised return is the idea. We, the beloved... The people of God are waiting for what? What happens in addition to the dissolving of everything by fire on this day? What happens is that everything also is made new. We, according to His promise, are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth 
in which righteousness dwells. It will never need to be cleansed, not by water, not by fire, not by fantastic, or, you know, God's never going to need to get out the loofah. Which means what? It means it will never be destroyed. It's eternal, is the idea. So then when are we going to experience the new heavens and the new earth? Well, on the day that Jesus returns, when all things will be burned up and all things by our Christ who makes all things new will, in fact, be made new. But then what's the chronology? What are the events that lead up to this thing? I mean, how does this deal play out in light of what Peter is taught? And I mean, you know, what do you do with the rapture? Because it seems to me that that's pretty clearly taught too, isn't it? Well, think about it this way. Back in the first century, and these people are first century writers. These people who read these letters originally lived in the first century. These people would have heard these words with first century ears. And back in the first century, when the great king of Rome, the emperor, would return from battle, by the way, usually after long periods of time, And he came back to his city. He didn't just rush through the gates and announce that he was there and, you know, go straight up to the castle and shower up. He would approach the city and he would stop. And outside the city, he would set up his camp. And then he would gather up his heralds and he would send his heralds into his city. And with a shout, they would proclaim the return of the king and they would blast their trumpets, you see. While the king waited outside. And the city would then get ready for the king. Man, they would decorate. They would make all things new, if you will. They would clean. They would prepare the city for the great king that they have been waiting for to return in victory, has finally returned in victory. And then, and it's really fascinating, only the citizens of Rome, only the Roman citizens, those who belonged to that king truly, would leave the city and they would come out to the encampment of their king and then together in triumphal jubilation, they would process back into the city that had been made new. It had been prepared for the arrival of the king. That, I think, is your rapture. That, I think, is the the way that it was understood as it was written and understood as it was originally heard. So what then happens? Well, I think the King Jesus, the great King, will return suddenly and unexpectedly. I think that His arrival, as the Scriptures teach, will be shouted forth by the heavenly heralds and blasted out with the blare of the trumpets. It's all the same language, you see. It's all there. And I think the dead in Christ will rise and we who are still alive will be changed. We'll receive these new bodies that we've already talked about. And then we will, if you will, come outside the city of this earth. We will be caught up with Christ in the air while the city is prepared. While those who have rejected the Christ and His free gospel of grace are judged. And I think that as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in that day. The heavens and the earth, as Peter has very clearly laid out for us, will be purified with fire. And our Lord who makes all things new will make all things new. And then, just like it was in the days of Rome, we will process in triumphal jubilation 
into the city and to the world of our great King. And there we will live with Him forever and ever. And that may be a little bit different from the way you grew up hearing it, and that's okay. And you may agree with me, and maybe you don't. I'm I'm okay with that as long as you're able to back your disagreement up with the Bible. If not, then I'd ask you to wrestle with it. But here's the deal. No matter what your end-time scenario is, if it's orthodox, it still ends with the same vision that we're going to be looking at for the next five or six weeks. So we can disagree on getting there and still agree on that. But what I wanted to do is to take some of these questions that might distract us when we do get there and kind of get them out of the way, okay? Because what lies before us is a holy task, and it tolerates no distraction. But in light of how everything here will end someday, let me ask you, how should you now live? For me to live is what? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Um, We thank You for Your Spirit who I pray is our teacher. We thank You for the great mysteries of God that scream forth Your redemption, that speak of our purchase, of our salvation, and of our eternal end, or perhaps I should say eternal beginning. Lord, we thank You for the privilege of being Yours through faith in Your Son. We thank You that along with all things, He is making us new. We praise you for that and ask that you would receive all the glory of it. In Jesus' name, amen.